You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 79 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? I'm very well. Well, yes, no, very well, but also <laughs> in the middle of school holidays. So oh. my very well is somewhat tempered by a complete inability to do anything useful. Yeah, right. So mm. what have you been doing? <laughs> well, you know what I did last week? I must share. Go I went on. to the St. Ives Medieval Fair. What? I know. There's a St. Ives Medieval Fair. There is. They have it every year. It's a weekend event. And I have to tell you, it was amazing. Really? It was so good. There was jousting and knights with swords. Is it for kids? Oh, it's for, no, no, no. It's, it's absolutely hilarious. There's all these people I discovered that, um, they join clubs so that they can dress up as Vikings on the weekend. Oh, yes, right. And they make camps. But they actually, like, I'm, I was talking to this girl. And she was sitting there and she was looking quite beautiful in her long frock and everything. And then she um, and she was sewing a cloak and uh-huh. she was telling me how she makes all her own stuff and they even make their own Viking shoes. And they had little villages set up from all different periods. Like there were Vikings, but there was also medieval, 11th century medieval, like different villages from different um, times across the period. Wow. Um, yeah, and it was so cool. And and just lots of people dress up, like just random people who go to the actual fair turn up in their outfits and it's it's fantastic. It's like being – it's like just like stepping back in time only they, to get a food. Do they talk to each other in medieval language, <laughs> vernacular? No, no, not really. Like I think in general discourse – like what did you do last weekend stuff, they they just chat. But they yeah, <laughs> but go, they were Oh fair lady. Oh fair lady. No, but they they were like they were cooking meals and the whole lot as as you know they would do. And then there was a big feast that was gonna take place later that night when all the plebs had gone home. Oh. And they were actually camping there. They had all their little beds set up and oh. um but of course there was also, you know, people selling weapons and Ooh. medieval craft and the boys both came home with bows and arrows and oh, wow. and are quite determined that they will be wearing their cloaks next year. Um, but, yeah, no, it was very, How did very I not good. know about this? I don't know, but I have to say that, you know, put it on your calendar for next <laughs> year because it is really worth a visit. It's very, very good. Well, very you know, good. I have a true confession. Uh-oh. You have my, Viking shoes? No, I don't have Viking shoes. <clears throat> um, I My fantasy dinner party, if I ever had one, and I've had this fantasy for 20 years, okay. is 
a medieval-like feast where, you know, there would be a wooden table and there would be um, uh, uh, th- th- just food all over the table where you don't have cutlery except maybe for some blunt instruments and you dip the bread in the treacle and you wash it down with mead and you pull the leg off the fowl that's sitting, on the, you know, um, in the middle of the table and, and – and, um, and you just chuck your, your your drumsticks on the straw floor behind you. That's I think that little... can be arranged, Val. I think we can. In fact, you know, it is the tenth anniversary birthday of the Australian <laughs> Writers Centre, and I don't understand why you haven't got one planned. Yes, I should have done that. I've got a cloak to wear. You know, I'm ready yes, to go. Yes, yes. <laughs> what were you thinking? Oh, sure. too many dietary requirements. <laughs> Well, that's but that's basic stuff. You're talking paleo when you talk medieval diet. You should see what they were eating. It was just like a bit of meat, you know, barbecued over a open fire with a couple of veggies on the side. <laughs> One day I will have this. One day. <clears throat> yes. All right. I'll, I'll look forward to hearing about it. In fact, I have to be invited. Otherwise, it'll be trouble. Of course. Hmm. Now, apart from going to medieval things, mm-hmm. you're very busy because of the launch of your book. Uh, yes, I am. This week, the uh, book three of the Mapmaker Chronicles, Breath of the Dragon, Woo-hoo. is hitting the bookshelves. Um, it's very exciting. I've got lots on. I've got a an author event to sort of a bit of a reading um, at one of the local bookshops on Friday, Dean Swift Books in Nowra, should anyone be, you know, on the South Coast, um, awesome. at 2.30. So I'll be doing that. And then I have got the Shulhaven Superhero Conference on Saturday. Cool. And uh, there's a big writing workshop program on for that day. I'm, I'm doing one for kids, which is called Find Your Writing Superpower. Hmm. Um, but there are also adult ones as well. Uh, Lisa Heidke will be there. Duncan Lay will be there. Sue Whiting's going. Um, I think it's going to be a really fun day for everybody. Awesome. And I'll be wearing my cloak. I'll get be practicing. I want to see. You need to dinner. take a photo and oh, I will. Of course, post I'll take it. a photo. We'll put it on Facebook. It'll be awesome. We'll put it in there'll the be, show notes. There'll be selfies. A go go. Excellent. <laughs> selfies. A go go. Okay. Well, let us move into the world of writing and publishing and blogging this week. Well, Let's. interesting link. What writers should do on social networks on from Writers Unplugged, yes. and. Um, I think that uh, it's a good fundamental post because I do see a lot of authors just not quite getting it on social media, don't you? I, I do. I see, And I see a lot of discussion on social media between authors discussing how they're not getting it on social media, which I <laughs> find really entertaining. Um, look, I think the thing that um, a lot of writers miss with social media media because there's a lot of it's not helping me sell books kind of yeah. discussion and I think that what writers are missing is that uh, social media for writers is about building community yeah. it's about networking it's about talking to people it's about putting your name in front of people so that people start talking about you mm. um, like I, I was really really interested because we did an interview last year it was one of our very earliest um, podcast interviews with Charlotte Wood yes um, and we discussed social media and she was saying how it doesn't sell books and, you know, a whole range of different things. Now, the interesting thing about that is that over the weekend I was on uh, Twitter poking around doing my usual thing and I saw other people talking about Charlotte Wood's book. Uh, it's called The Natural Way of Things. Yes, it's The Natural novel. Way of Things, yes. It's getting fantastic reviews. Mm. But the number of discussions I saw between people unrelated to Charlotte mm. talking about that book on social media, 
and I just wanted to take fo- I wanted to take screenshots and send them to her and say mm. this is what social media is about. It's mm. about being in front of people and having them talking about your book. And I think that that's um, something that that read it that writers need to keep in mind. Mm. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And I think that um, uh, there's some tips here in this post, what writers should not do on social media though. Mm. And it and it says, don't post buy my book over and over oh, again. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah. And I would add to that, don't just constantly talk about your book or, or constantly just retweet other people talking about your book. If you've got nothing um, else to say apart from your book, seriously, yeah. it's just boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need to be a full you need to be a full person. Yes. Because social media is about, you know, people talking to people. It's not tweets talking to tweets. Mm. Um, there's always someone behind the tweet. And I think it's really important. People like to get to know who the person behind the tweet is. And I guess that's the other thing too, is that a this is where a blog can help because you it gives you um, you know, it gives you something to kind of talk about, share. Uh, it gives you space to write more stuff about what you're thinking, et cetera. Um, and I think that that's, you know, the, the two often go together for me. Social media and blogging, I think, are all part of the same pot. And mm. um, and if for nothing else, it puts you into the realm and to the community of bloggers. So I think, yeah, I, but, you know, just sending out, you know, buy my book, it's on special for 99 cents constantly is not going to make you any friends. And that's what you're kind of trying to do on social media. Yes. So basically, if you think that you can, you know, build your platform and build your community and build more cus- and get more customers, if you're a, especially if you're a newer author without social media, you're talking to the wrong people. Mm, very true. <laughs> Let's move on to the next link, which is from Digital Synopsis. It's actually um, via Heather Smith. Hello, Heather. Hello, uh, Heather. And it's for writers. A Czech beer company creates a typewriter that pours beer as you type. Now, you know that I love typewriters, don't you? Uh, I, yes, we've talked about them a lot, but we've never discussed one that's quite as useful as this. Yes. Well, this one is called the tap writer because it's connected to a draft beer machine and it's the world's first type controlled draft. So there you go. It's, that's it's hilarious. <laughs> it's made various appearances at book fairs and festivals in Romania. And, uh, you, you, you know, they, they give a blank piece of paper to someone who wants to try it out and, um, they tap away and they get free beer dispensed into your glass, um, as the words pour out. So <laughs> I think that that's very, very clever. Perhaps we could add that to your medieval feast. We could pop it down one end of the table and everyone's got to write a page to get a beer. So yeah, you could have a whole novel done the by the end of it. period. I don't know. That's so? You've got to be authentic. Oh, Valerie. I think yeah. we can make exceptions for a typewriter that pours beer. All right. We'll have it in another room. Okay, fine. I'm all right with that. I'm all right. So let's move on to our next link, which is really interesting. This is from The Right Life, and it's called Beware of Byline Snatchers, How to Protect Your Freelance Writing Identity. And it's written by somebody called Samantha Storff, and she has written about the fact that she, you know, recently received a tweet from a website she contributed to in the past, tagged as the writer of their most recent article. And she racked her brains and thought, oh, I don't remember writing that article, so I'm going to – but, you know, maybe that happened and she checked all her emails and checked her, her, you know, her hard drive and she realised she did not 
write that article. Mm. So she clicked through to read the article and found, and she says she found subpar writing and mm. a few obvious commercial links. So a fake Samantha Stoff stole her name and photo to build links for his or her clients. So that is just bizarre. Have you heard of this happening? No. I haven't, but you know, you, as soon as that's in your face, you immediately go, "Oh yeah, I can see how that would happen." Yes. But how aren't spammers are becoming so sophisticated? I just think it's really yeah. oh, that's what they're going to do now. I I don't know, and and the fact that you can't, it's very difficult to protect yourself. Is what is probably the most uncomfortable thing about the whole story to me. Mm, would you mm. agree? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I just think it's bizarre. I, I mean, it's it's you hear of people stealing your actual words, and putting their name on it, mm. and you do hear of that quite a bit. Well, not quite mm. a bit, but that's certainly more common than this. But you rarely hear of people stealing your name and trying to cash in on your name and reputation. Mm. Um, although this does remind me of, um, I think I may have mentioned this story, I can't remember now, of uh, an editor I know who commissioned, and we'll call him, we'll call the writer John. It was, mm. you know, it's a common name, but, mm. um, and his email address was john1 at hotmail.com. So mm-hmm. I'm just giving that by way of example. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so the editor was emailing John1 at Hotmail.com and agreed on the commission and everything mm-hmm. and uh, agreed on the price, the number of words. And this was – John was a reputable writer. And then the editor obviously just didn't maybe write his e- email down properly. <laughs> and he emailed the, fo- the actual brief to John at Hotmail.com. So mm-hmm. he missed out the one. Mm. But the whoever is on the end of John at Hotmail.com uh, received the brief and bizarrely actually did the work. Oh. And it was some ridiculous thing, like a series of articles, it's like 10,000 words or something insane, actually did the work, delivered the work, and the editor receives the work and it's terrible. And he mm. goes, I can't believe this is going on. This is terrible. Um, I, this guy's got a really good reputation. How could this work be so bad? <laughs> but oh he actually received the article from someone completely different and he emailed uh, John at hotmail.com back and said, this is really not what I, the standard I expected. And, and John, you know, second John said, Oh, I'll fix it. Don't worry. I'll, I'll make it better. And, you know, promised to, 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 to deliver a better product. In the meantime, the editor, uh, finally obviously emailed the right email, emailed yep. John1 at hotmail.com and said, you know, I've been expecting your second revision. Where is it? And um, the original John, John1 at hotmail.com, emailed back and he said, oh, yeah, this happens all the time. <laughs> this what? guy, This guy takes up my commissions. He even responds to some of my social engagements. Oh, that is so bizarre. Really? It happens all the time? Yeah. He's done the work? It's just so weird. I know, so weird. People are weird. I know. And you I haven't told that story before, I would remember it. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, um, crazy. So have you got any thoughts as to what we can do to, you know, protect ourselves from this, you know, um, 
freelance yeah. writing Number one, set up Google Alerts so that you're at least aware of it. So absolutely, you need to set up Google Alerts for your own name. Mm. Um, That doesn't necessarily help things like plagiarism, but uh, it certainly helps things like this where people have stolen your identity. So it's obviously then you need to contact the uh, publication in question to alert them of this and, and make sure that they are very clear that you have a particular email address that that is a fake person and see what they can do about it because at the very least they can take it down. Yeah. Yeah. But by negating any value. Yes. Online searches of your name, uh, well, Google alerts for your name uh, are useful. But on the flip side of it, when it's plagiarism, what I do just occasionally is Google chunks of my writing Mm. just to see whether it's appeared anywhere else and Mm. um, that can be useful. Mm, absolutely. There you go. Right. Well done. Let us move on. Let us. And it's a link that I think um, it's going to pose a good question to you. So this is uh, a link that's in also The Right Life and it's Become a Ghostwriter, Here's How to Write in Someone Else's Voice. And this really made me think about – you because you have ghostwritten before I have. and my question to you is how did you capture that person's voice um through judicious interviewing mm-hmm. I think that you I did a lot of um interviewing uh with the people involved and um listen carefully and get a lot of obviously you're getting a lot of uh, quotes etc from that the the first section of one of the books i wrote was all in first person because it was a uh you know like a biography uh section autobiographical section so i did that first and that allowed me to you know put the person's quotes together and go through etc and once you've done that for almost 20,000 words mm. you have a very very good sense of how that person speaks Mm. and so what you're obviously trying to capture with their voice is how they speak but better Um, obviously that's what writing is how you speak but better Um, so you know so by immersing yourself in the interviewing process and then writing that sort of thing that allowed me to then put myself into the voice Um, but it's also that whole thing of I've spent my whole working life writing for uh magazines and things that have mm. a specific voice. Yes. So having to learn that voice and, you know, subjugate my voice into that voice. Um, so I have had a lot of practice at it. And I, so I think it's like anything else. I think it's practice yes. um, as with most things with writing. Um, but really getting yourself a good ear for dialogue. Um, I've just written an article actually, which is going to appear on a big writing website soon about Mm -hmm. some of the things that freelance writing has taught me when it comes to writing fiction because I know that people think they're two separate things but in actual fact you learn a skill set with freelance writing um, that takes you into other genres of fiction other genres of writing Mm -hmm. and I think that that interviewing process and listening for someone's voice um, is absolutely has been so useful when it comes to writing dialogue and stuff as well because you're looking, you're listening, you know, everyone has a different way of putting things yes. and a different way of emphasising and a different way of um, 
uh, yeah, stringing their thoughts together. And so, you know, when you're used to listening for those things uh, over a long period of time in a lot of different interviews, um, yes. that very much allows you, it helps you with a dialogue in fiction, but it also helps you to find a voice for ghostwriting. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I think also you had the luxury in a sense of uh, ghostwriting for a particular person for um, for the book, whereas um, mm. I had a situation where I've, I've ghostwritten two books, but one of them was written by two people. Oh, that's so, hard. Yeah, that's that was so hard. That's hard. And um, and so I was getting into, I was talking to you and getting material from two very different people with very different levels of good, both very good levels of knowledge because they were experts in their area, but very different levels of communication. And so that was that was certainly a challenge to try and get the right voice and a cohesive voice for 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 that book. But you know. I'm glad, I think we got there in the end, which is good, but it was, mm-hmm. yeah, a lot of time. Yeah, well, it was it was difficult enough. Like I co-wrote um, a romance novel, as you know, and mm. th- that was uh, writing with someone whose voice, you know, was obviously different, not too dissimilar, but it was difficult enough just coming up with one voice for that particular, <laughs> for mm. that particular book, let alone, you know, you using two voices and then your own voice and trying to come up with a cohesive voice that sounded like one voice. Yes, yes. Well, in the end, one of them had a much stronger voice than the other. Mm. And so in the end, really, I used her voice. Yeah. Yeah, adapted to Mm. her voice. Mm. Okay, so let us move on to an interesting link that was in the Sydney Morning Herald and it was by Nadal Stelio and it's Did Bloggers Kill Fashion Week? Dun, dun, dun. Uh, <laughs> and um, a murder mystery. Yes, because you know that for many years the the fro, the front row, mm. has always been occupied by the editors and the fashion editors of the glossy women's magazines. And there's been a real hierarchy in terms of where you're placed and where you sit, because that tells you how important you are to that particular designer or that particular fashion week. And so uh, in recent years, uh, many magazine editors have been perturbed by the fact that fashion bloggers are even invited to Fashion Week, let alone given seats because they expect them to stand up, um, let alone be given the front row. Mm. So uh, it says here, while fashion has always been rather exclusionary, with only select media privy to a front row seat, for the past few years they've had to shuffle along to make room for fashion bloggers, those pesky self-made influencers that traditional media has had a hard time accepting. See, the power has shifted. And what's interesting is that uh, they quote a particular uh, Australian fashion designer who decided to remain unnamed – well, a spokesperson for a successful Australian fashion label who remains unnamed, and they say the power has most definitely shifted. We had a skirt of ours featured on the fashion pages of a magazine, and we got three calls. Then we had a dress go on Sarah Donaldson's blog, Harper and Harley, so Sarah's a fashion blogger. It mm. sold out in days. Interesting. Oh. So what do you think about all of this and how, not just this in particular, but how the industry is evolving and who the influencers are now? And what does that mean for us as writers? Oh, that's a big question, Valerie. Yeah, really? I thought I'd throw um, it at you. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
I, look, I just think it shows that. I mean, it's 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 not a like it's not like a newsflash. It's people are mm. absorbing their media and their messages in different ways to what they did ten years ago, and I think that. Um, what they're looking for, particularly, I think maybe uh, younger people are, they look for people they can relate, they aspire to and relate to, and that's mm. who these bloggers are. Like I look at Gary Peppergirl there, and she's you know this gorgeous young thing who looks fabulous in clothes and has a glamorous lifestyle, and you know most of her, um, you know four and a half million followers probably want to be her. So mm. it's um, you know I think it's changed, and if you've got someone who can reach that many people with one photograph. Mm then you have to you have to make it uh, you know it, you have to shuffle along in the front row <laughs> you have to shuffle along in the front row well you do yes, you know true. like it, you have to acknowledge that there's um they're more know, influential that, than you yeah the power yeah. base has shifted somewhat i think people still go to magazines for i don't know what do they go you know read in the fa- bathtub i've read to fashion the magazines mm. um you know for for a, there's a certain you know, credibility that comes with Vogue and stuff like that. Mm. But I also think that for fashion, which is like something I want to buy right now mm. and put on my body and wear for three months and probably recycle, mm. you know, the instant, that instant nature of the internet, you, uh, magazines just can't compete with it. Yes. And I think also that um, a lot of fashion bloggers, they take photos of what they're wearing today or what, you know, the stuff mm. in real life. They look fabulous, but mm. it's like what they're wearing today. So you can actually wear that. Whereas when you're flipping through the editorial pages of Vogue and seeing what Grace Coddington has has created in this wonderful Alice in Wonderland scenario or whatever Im- incredible scenario she's dreamt, dreamt up, which looks amazing on the page, the reality is you're never going to wear clothes like that way ever no and it's you know I mean it's I think it's just different types of aspiration um Mm. and with I mean you know like the whole thing with Vogue is always you know there's the $9,000 skirt next to the $20 pair of trainers and that's fine and the $9,000 skirt is supposed to inspire you like some people will buy it Mm. but really it's supposed to just inspire you to go and buy the closest thing that you can afford whereas you know um the fashion bloggers will often just give you here I am in this this is this this is where you get it um or or here are five other pieces that you can buy right now that look exactly like this do you know yes. what I mean so yeah it's um, accessible it's that, yeah that instant kind of thing is very very difficult what does it mean for us as writers well fashion I don't know you tell me I'm going to throw that back at you, Valerie, because it's way too early in the morning for me to address such a question. Yes, it was an unfair question. And I guess the reality is we're not fashion bloggers, so it doesn't really matter that much to us. But I think it does highlight the fact that social media is a real thing and ignore it at your peril. You don't necessarily have to post pictures of what you're wearing or anything like that, but just be aware of the power that it can hold. Mm. But I thought I would just circle back to Grace Coddington because both you and I mentioned that uh, we have her memoir. And for Mm. people who don't know, Grace Coddington is the creative director at US Vogue under Anna Winter. And uh, she became – she shot to prominence really – when the September issue, the documentary, the September yep. issue came out and people really came to know that she's a real powerhouse. And uh, you have her memoir, correct? I do. I have her memoir. Have you yes. had a chance to read it yet? No, I haven't. No. It's still sitting there. It's the most beautiful looking book. It is like beautiful. Like cover-wise and everything. It's a gorgeous book. But no, I haven't read it because I've just, you know, I, I don't know. I, th- I Remember we discussed me and memoir and how I'm, I'm not often – 
a reader of a memoir? Well, this might not help you, Al, because I'm about halfway or three quarters through, and and it's it, it it's an effort. Oh. Um, not not the prose or anything. I mean, it's 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 nicely written. It's easy to read, but it's really. I did this fashion shoot with this model and this photographer and these clothes. And then I did oh. this fashion shoot with this model and this photographer with these clothes. And then I did oh. this fashion shoot in this location with this okay, model. Okay, get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I mean, getting the vibe. Of course, there is a little bit more than that, but it, 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 it is kind of – it is an account of her life, but more like – via the fashion shoots that she's done. <laughs> mm-hmm. And people of a certain age and in a certain industry will find that interesting because there's a lot of names in there that you'll recognise. Um, but, yeah, it's not the most compelling read in the world. Okay. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. Yes. I'll just leave it on the bottom of my to-be-read pile for the time being. <laughs> uh, but let's move on to our writing book this week. Yeah, speaking of to-be-read, talk me through it. Ah, what yes. So I um, got – Big Magic, you know, Elizabeth yeah. Gilbert's new book, Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear. And I bought this. I, I even got the bookshop to hold it um, mm. so that I could pick it up on Saturday morning so that I could read it over the weekend mm-hmm. And um, because there's so much hype about this and she's been interviewed in so many different places and um, – uh, we, we've received so – I've received some comments from a couple of people saying that they're not feeling it and oh. they're just not – you know, they don't hate it or anything, but they're just not loving it. And that was a little bit discouraging. And I had every intention to read this over the weekend mm. to report back today. I feel there's a but coming, <laughs> Valerie. I don't – I'm just, you know, I feel mm. there's a but. And – yeah, I, you, I've got to be honest because I know we scheduled this for today for me to talk about, but I have to be mm. honest and I promise I will read it by next week. But I got <laughs> distracted by David Duchovny in the mini, in the television series Aquarius. I, I just found them on my Foxtel IQ. So you binge watched those instead? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Well, guys. you know, you will talk to us about it next week. But have you started it? Are you- I have. I ha- and I've so- I'm, I'm, I'm only up to like page 20. Okay. <laughs> You've got nothing to say about it at all, have you? But I've enjoyed the first 20 pages. Oh, good. Well, there's a good start. All right. <laughs> well, we look forward to hearing about the next 20 pages next week. I'm human. I'm sorry. And I'd just like to say that I do have 270 short stories that I'm still trying <gasps> to get through. I forgot about that. How's it going? Yeah, yeah, slowly, but I'm getting there. I'm trying to work out a rating system and everything. Um, but, you know, in my defence, I have other things that I have yeah, to do. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Okay, we'll let you off right. this time. Okay. So let's move on to our uh, writer in residence this week. Our writer in residence this week is Robert Hogue, and it's a very interesting story. Um, some people may remember seeing Robert on Australian Story. Um, there were, I can't exactly remember when it was, but there was an episode with him on it not so long ago. Um, so he wrote a memoir called Ugly, which is about, on his bio, growing up ugly and disabled. Um, it's also about bad haircuts and reading awful teen love poems um, and other things. But he, um, his book, his memoir, Ugly, has also just recently been turned into a children's book called Ugly, which is um, getting, you know, has been hugely well received. He's been, um, it's been, so it's like a, a small, you know, like a 
younger version um, for children of his story. And uh, he's been taking it out to schools and things like that and incredibly well received. And the message is basically just that, you know, it's okay to be different. Wonderful. All right. So let's have a talk to Robert. Robert Hogue has worked as a journalist, a speechwriter, a science communicator for the CSIRO and a political advisor to the former Queensland Premier and Deputy Premier. He has had numerous short stories, articles, interviews and other works published in Australia and overseas. His memoir, Ugly, was published by Ashet Australia in 2013 and a children's book of the same name was recently published. So welcome to the show, Robert. Hello, Alison. So let's talk about your memoir. How did you come to write a memoir in the first place? What made you think, I'm going to write a memoir? There's probably two different aspects to it. Every single job I've ever had has been a writing job. Um, my first job uh, in university was actually working on the university sports newspaper. Mm. I, didn't have a, I didn't have a job at a supermarket or delivering papers or anything like that when I was a teenager. So essentially every single job I've ever had has been a writing job. So wow. in, in one sense... Uh, I'm a storyteller and it's what I do all of the time and it's how I make my way in this world. So part of the reason I wanted to write the memoir was just to tell another story uh, and to tell my story. Mm -hmm. On top of that, there was uh, the opportunity to talk to uh, people with disability and parents of people with disability uh, about some of the uh, issues I've faced in my life. Yes. So, you know, I've, I've got two artificial legs and I've got some facial deformities and, and that was an interesting journey for me when I was very young, very younger. Yep. Much younger. Very and younger. For my, very younger. Oh, dear. I like that. <laughs> Not very good writing um, when I was much younger and for my parents. And so the other aspect of uh, why I wrote it was uh, maybe to talk to people who are a bit like me okay. and to parents who faced uh, similar situations that my parents faced. All right, so it's a, it's a memoir that is often described. I, you know, I Googled it and there's a lot of you know, inspirational uh, used to describe the memoir. Did you set out to write an inspirational book? I kind of, I didn't set out to write uh, an inspirational book as such. Uh, what I actually wanted to write was a book about how many parts of my life were actually quite normal. Mm. Um, and I think where people take inspiration from the book is uh, because I've kind of approached how uh, I looked and my disability uh, as, as quite normal mm. and as essentially a really normal part of my life. So there's there's a lot of parts of the book where I talk about operations I've had and, and things that are particularly um, individual to me and uh, and my body. But there's also a lot of the book that's just about growing up as a normal kid in Australia. Mm. And that was really important to me because I wanted to sort of say to people that um, this book isn't just about someone who looks ugly and who has a disability. It's actually about how that relates to me growing up as a normal kid in Australia. Mm. So I think where people find some inspiration in it is that it touches back to uh, a lot of kind of normal childhood experiences. Okay. So what then was the most difficult aspect of writing the book for you? Like, Because memoir is a very personal, can be a very deep, can be a very painful mm. thing to write. What, what was the most difficult thing for you? There's probably, uh, there's probably a couple of aspects to it. Um, it required me to kind of answer a lot of questions about myself and what mm. I thought about my disability and the way I looked. And, and that wasn't so much... Um, 
in terms of the actual writing process, the putting of words on paper. It was actually how I thought about those things um, because I wanted to tell my life story chronologically, right. um, which, which I did in the memoir. Um, but I also had the opportunity in various places to reflect on aspects of my life and, and what I thought that meant uh, to the broader population. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably... The toughest thing from there are a couple of tough bits. There are some, you know, there was a, a few instances of bullying and 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 name calling uh, that that were hard to write about. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote about uh, my mother dying, um, which was hard to write about, mm-hmm. and and those sort of things, content wise, were hard hard to write about. But probably even harder um, than that was. I started off wanting to be a really clever writer and it's like, I've got to write this in a really clever way and make it really meaningful and, you know, make people feel things. And so I peppered throughout the manuscript, all of these, what one of my friends who read it described as these poor bugger me moments. And, and, and she quite, uh, properly identified that I wasn't, that wasn't the kind of story I was trying to tell. I was actually trying to tell the story of, how um, how I fit into a fairly routine and normal Australian life. Mm. And so kind of the hardest aspect for me was just pulling back some of that emotion. Right. That's interesting, and, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So pulling back some of that emotion and actually letting readers experience it and feel it for themselves. Okay. So the value of the first reader who doesn't just tell you what you want to hear is identified right there, isn't it? Because do you feel like you came out with a much better story because of that? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. When when I was when I was editing the manuscript, I'd, I I I kept thinking about all these poor bugger me moments, and I just wrote on a bit of paper and stuck it to my monitor. PBM, poor bugger me, and it's like, you know, the story actually needs to stand on its own two feet, even though I don't have any legs. The story <laughs> needs to stand on its own own two feet, and. Um, uh, and 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 make sense to readers in a way that doesn't tell them how they should feel about it, right? Um, yeah, because it's not you know it's not it's not an instruction manual for people who are like me. It's not a it's not a self help book. It's just a story. Mm. And um, you know, I think with any story, if you have to tell people in the text how they should feel about that story, then you failed as a writer. Yeah, and I think that works for fiction, non-fiction, memoir, all of the things, because it's something that I know a lot of first-time fiction writers will often do as well, is, is yeah. you know, foreshadow what the reader needs to, you know, make sure, but basically belt them over the head yeah. with what they need to be, um, to be feeling and thinking at that time. But with a memoir, like, I think one of the things that you come across, like when you, you said you wanted to tell your life chronologically and, and, and that sort of thing, but... Um, how like you could you could have ended up with a manuscript that was like five hundred thousand words long. So how do you decide you know what to leave out and what to put in? Well, I think for me it was actually balancing those two aspects of the story that I talked about before, mm-hmm. talking uh, about the bits of my life that were special enough to warrant someone reading a book. Mm-hmm. Um, so I talked a lot about medical procedures I had and and operations I had and and what it was like to to grow up in school with a you know, a funny face. Mm. And I talked a lot about having um, two artificial legs and what it was like, what what they were like and what it was like getting new ones fitted and learning to walk. Um, but, but then uh, on the flip side of that was just trying to convey normal aspects of an Australian kid growing mm. up. And so it was, it was kind of 
working out how I balanced that, how mm. I told my particular story, but also just continually dragging the reader back to saying these are really important parts of my life, but I also had in many regards, a quite normal yeah. Australian childhood. Yeah. Going to pool, swimming, going to the beach for summer holidays, all of those kinds of things. Okay. So I think, you know, th- those and those kinds of stories gave the opportunity to sketch out a bit more about my family. They gave the opportunity um, for me to add a bit of humour and a yeah. bit of colour yeah. and, and a bit of pathos. So, yeah. you know... It was kind of, it was just kind of that jigsaw puzzle where I, I knew there were particular elements of my life that would have to be in there, and then I could choose individual stories from me growing up that helped serve a bigger purpose. Okay, so how long did it actually take you to write the memoir in the first place? Well, there's two answers to that, Alison. Yes. The, the first answer is probably about sixteen years, right. um, and, and the second <laughs> answer is about um, uh, about six months. Okay. Um, so I um, I used to be a journalist, yep. and in my early 20s, I used to have uh, a lot of arguments with my mother about who should write this story. Oh. Um, my mother was, uh, was, you know, she wasn't a professional writer, but she wrote very well, and, and I kept insisting that she should write her story because she had a really important part in this whole thing. Yep. And she kept saying to me, no, you're the journalist and you should write it. And um, so I started writing it, and I probably wrote about... I don't know, ten or 15,000 words. And it was just overwrought and mm-hmm. all of these Paul Bugamy moments <laughs> and just really, um, I, w- I wasn't a good enough writer to write it then. Right. And so I put it aside for, um, well, more than 10 years yep. uh, while I went and did some other things. And then I, you know, I had the opportunity to come back to it and I wrote about 20,000 words, and and it was in reasonable shape. And then I got the opportunity to, to sell the manuscript um, and write the book. So it took me about six months when I got down to it. All right. So I, I know you have a family, and I know that you have a day job, and it's quite a sizable day job. How did you make it work? Because that's the question that a lot of people, you mm. know, always ask me. How do you do family, day job, you know, writing, and all the stuff that goes with it? Um, how did you make that work? Well, I think, you know, I, I, I was, I'd written, um, I quit a very busy job to go back to a job with less responsibility yeah. so I could get the book written. Yeah. Um, and then I was lucky and I ended up taking a redundancy and finishing the book full time. Yeah. Um, and that, that's not an opportunity that uh, is in front of um, uh, every person. No. But I just like that to me just comes back to the math. Um uh, if people want to do the math, if you do 250 words a day, five days a week, and give yourself two days off and not do anything, um, you can get a book written in a year. Yeah. Um, and if it's a big book, you can get it written in a year and a half. Yeah. Um, it's it's doable. Yeah. And I mean, I'm I'm not the kind of person who says writers must write every day or must do a must write at a certain time. Um, but I think people who want to write need 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 to have kind of examined their own writing process. Yes. So the threshold I always look at is has has someone finished something? And if someone's finished a bunch of short stories or if someone's finished uh, a draft of a novel, then um they've whatever routine they've got working for them is the one that works for them. Yeah. Um if you haven't and you're still trying to eke out time, just start low and 
do 200 words, 250 words a day. Yeah. And if you do it every five days a week, in the morning, in the afternoon, on the train, at lunchtime, uh, you'll, have a, you'll have a manuscript by the end of the year. Yeah. That's what I always say too, Robert. So we are definitely Indeed. on the same page <laughs> right there. Um, so who came up with the idea of producing a children's version of that your memoir? My, that was my wonderful publisher, Hachette. Fantastic. Um, when uh, I kind of had the sense that when I wrote the adult uh, version of the book that I'd have an opportunity to, to talk to lots of people about the stuff that's in the book and some mm-hmm. of the ideas in the book, what I hadn't quite realised was there. Uh, was that there would be so much call to talk to school kids. Mm. And I had a lot of opportunities to go and talk to school kids, and they really want to talk about appearance and, and looks and, 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 and a bit about disability, but they really want to talk about appearance. And I did a lot of that in kind of the year and a half uh, after Ugly. Uh, I call them Ugly and Ugly Junior, but um, <laughs> after, after Ugly came out, the adult edition, I, had a, I did a lot of that in the next year and a half. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my publisher said, well, why don't we do a, why don't we do a young readers edition? I'm like, sure. Let me, let me see if I can write to that, write to that market. So I knocked out a couple of uh, chapters and said, what do you think about this? And they said, great, let's go to the show. Great. So was it challenging? Like, was it, was there any, you know, was it different? Like in what way was it different to writing the memoir in the first place? I think, um, I'm probably lucky, and I've had a lot of people ask me kind of what the differences were. I'm probably lucky. My training as a writer was as a as a journalist, mm. so I'm not overly descriptive. I'm not overly fancy. Mm. I am. I'm a. I'm a very kind of um, uh, you know one noun, one verb <laughs> kind of <laughs> sentence guy. Um, so at at the sentence level the kind of the tone and the quality of the writing w- was pitched reasonably well. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, there was stuff in the adult book that would have bored uh, kids. So mm-hmm. that was easy enough to pull out. And I think for me, it was actually, uh, so we, we essentially cut the book in half. So, so the, the, um, uh, the children's edition ends when I'm 14 years old. When uh, I make okay. a very important decision about my future, yeah. um, about whether I'm going to have more operations or not. Yeah. I won't spoil that, but oh, um, no. that, that's a good place to kind of, there's a good, there's a good circle to the book. It's a yeah. good place to end the book. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the content was, was kind of easy enough to, to work out. But then it's actually just about, you know, choosing better metaphors and choosing better examples and better analogies and, and stuff that kids understand and just probably making the writing was, was I think simple enough that the adult um, edition was simple enough that a kid who was 12 or 13 could pick it up and understand it. Um, I would not have read the adult edition when I was 12 or 13. No. But it was actually just about making it a bit more engaging as well and energetic. Okay. And so did you enjoy the process of doing it? I loved it. Oh, there you go. Yeah, it was great fun. Oh, excellent. So has anything surprised you about, you know, venturing into that children's market at all, like as a new sort of genre for you as a writer? Oh, I don't know. Surprised is 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 the word. I just think I'm I'm extraordinarily lucky um, and privileged to be able to 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 write for kids. Mm-hmm. And I think probably if one thing surprised me, it's like um, how keen they are to engage with authors. Mm-hmm. So you know, I get lots of emails and Instagram messages and Facebook messages, just 
from kids who want to talk about the book and the ideas in the book, mm. which is really lovely. Yeah, it is nice. They're very, they are a very engaged audience. They like to they let are. you know what they think, don't they? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so um, you've written short stories in the past. Do you continue to write fiction at all? Uh, I, I've been writing some longer fiction, so mm-hmm. I, I'm midway through the draft of a novel, mm-hmm. um, which is always fun. I'm doing my 250 words a day. Uh, I haven't written any short stories in a while, but I've, I've, I've got a hunkering to get back into it, and I think next year there might be a few short stories in my future. Do you think that um, your day job, like you know, working as a writer on a regular basis, do you think that helps or hinders your writing, your other no. writing projects? Absolutely. Uh, well, uh, there's probably two aspects to it. I think um, uh, having worked as a, a journal in the past and, and having, you know, written all of my life, it's, it's extraordinarily helpful because mm-hmm. it's just that bum in chair time, sit down and write, even when it's not very good, you just got to push through it and get it done. Um, you know, because when I was a journalist, I didn't have the luxury of uh, saying to my editor, it's just not working today. He's like, well, no, tough luck, um, make it work. Uh, so that was um, uh, that was the good aspect of it. I think, you know, the fact it was a writing job probably isn't any different from anyone else having a... Re- on the negative side, the fact I've got writing jobs isn't necessarily any harder than having a different kind of busy job that fills your head yeah. um, for 8, 9, 10, 12 hours a day. Yeah. Um, you know... It's hard sometimes to disengage from that and get stuff done. And I actually think people who are right, who, people who are working full time, need to cut themselves a bit of slack in terms of saying, okay, you know, I've got to put food on the family's table and I've got to look after myself professionally. I want to get my writing done and I've got to make it a priority, but I don't have to beat myself up no. while I'm doing it. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> mm. All right, so let's just switch gears slightly. Um, now, you have a good following on Facebook and Twitter, and it looks like something you quite enjoy, like you seem to be quite engaged across it. I mean, what are your thoughts on the idea of the author platform? Do you think that people need one, that writers need one? Uh, I think so. I think, you know, there's a lot of – if you Google it, you're going to get a lot of um, probably – uh, broadly useless information about author platform. Mm. I actually just think um, if you like engaging with people and you like talking socially online, then have a you know be on Facebook, be on Twitter. Mm. Um, I think it's important to have some sort of presence, uh, whether that's a, a website that just you know even if people just want to have a website that has how to contact them via email and some really simple stuff, a headshot, a copy of your a copy of the cover of your book, mm. um, a, a bio, you know, that will, that will serve you well. Um, but I'm actually interested in engaging with people and talking to people. And I found that, um, I think I've had this discussion with other authors and particularly authors who are writing fiction. Um, I think it's probably easier for nonfiction writers in some regards, and mm. especially for me, because I'm talking about something rather mm. than just, plugging a book, yeah. um, but I've, I've uh, found both, both Facebook and Twitter uh, extraordinarily worthwhile in terms of the investment in time I, I put into them, in yeah. terms of delivering actual book sales and delivering opportunities and leveraging um, publicity, and 
Yeah, really, really worthwhile. So you're on Facebook and Twitter. Do you and did you say Instagram as well? That you? I am. I am. Yes. And and so which of those is your favourite? And when you were talking about how much time you put into them, approximately how much time do you put into them? I probably oh, it would probably be I don't know probably less than two hours a week. Mm. Um, I'm not posting. I am not posting a lot of author stuff mm. uh, all the time because I think that's just going to going to annoy people. Yeah. Um, I, I just think. You just need to be there and be um, engaged and interesting. Um, you don't need to have a four-year plan to how you're going to get to 428 million Twitter followers. You mean I you think... don't have a strategy, Robert? <laughs> I just like my strategy is, oh, this is cool. I'm going to talk about this. And I think for me, it's actually my sort of goals are about growing an audience over a longer period. Yeah. Um, I, I, I couldn't care less about getting an extra 50 followers um, tomorrow. I'd rather know that in um, three years' time, I've got an extra 5,000 because I've engaged with people intelligently yeah. over um, over a longer period. So I, I think there's definitely I, – I think authors need to do it Across an author's career, they need to do it, and it needs to be focused around them rather than individual books. Yeah. Um, I think there's always often a tendency to do a Facebook page for a specific book, and yeah. and indeed, you know, a publisher may say that's a good idea, but but I think for an author who intends to be working for decades, mm. they they need to be in that space, even if it's only a little bit because you never know what kinds of opportunities it will generate. No, that's so true. All right, well, just to finish up, let's talk about the infamous three top tips for writers ah. question. Um, what, you know, for, for emerging writers, aspiring writers, starting out writers, what would be your three top tips? I think probably uh, read and write lots. Um, Listen to the sound of words. Personally, I believe that um, voice, uh, the quality of voice in writing, uh, can carry all sorts of writing a long way, mm. um, particularly as a published nonfiction author. Um, the difference between good nonfiction and bad nonfiction is the quality of voice. Mm. And, and if someone nails uh, that voice, um, readers will go with them on any journey. It could be uh, it could be a history of. Um, cigarette tins from 1890 to 1915. Uh, but if the voice is right, um, readers will go on that journey uh, for a long time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, read, read and write lots. Uh, listen to the sound of words. Um, and, oh, I was thinking a third thing before. Um, uh, Mm, what was it? I had something very intelligent to say. And I know. I, it's, I, I feel that it's going to be absolutely groundbreaking <laughs> oh, we're, and mind-blowing. Yeah. Um, uh, no, let me go with something really simple. Just just finish things. Oh, that finish is things. very good and, advice. Um, you know, it, just push through and finish them because um, you might start a novel and you might get 48,000 words into it and think this is the worst piece of rubbish uh, ever committed to paper. Um, it, rest assured, it probably isn't, um, but you're going to learn five times as much pushing on for those extra 30, 40, 50,000 words than going back and repeating that 
first 48,000 words again. So true. Um, just finished stuff. And that was probably really good for me as a journalist. And it's a pretty easy to say when you might have been writing 300-word um, uh, newspaper articles. <laughs> but there's a lot of value in finishing stuff. There is. So true. All right, Robert Hoke, thank you so much for being with us today. It's thank been you. lovely chatting to you. Um, good luck with the uh, uh, ugly junior, shall we say. <laughs> and, um, yeah, we look forward to seeing what you do next. Thanks, Alison. Great interview with Robert. Yeah, really, really enjoyable. And I think um, that our listeners will have got a lot out of it. Well, I hope so anyway. So. Yeah, awesome. All right. So have you got a web pick or an app pick for us this week? I do. And this comes via my friend Ken, and he let me know about this, and it's called The Britishizer. Oh, oh no. Dun, dun, dun. Maybe it's called The Britishizer. Oh. The, uh, the Britishizer. Yes, sorry. <laughs> I was trying to make to it, it sound right. like a blockbuster Hollywood movie, like, you know, The Terminator or something. Mm. The British size. Yes. So <laughs> what this is, it's an app, and we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, but if you don't want to look it up, it's us2, the number two, uk.eu, and it converts text. So the British Sizer will convert US English spelling to UK English and also alert you when it finds words which can be spelt two ways in British English against only one in US English. So it's free and you don't have to register or anything and it doesn't remember what you convert, it says. So you just, you know, cut and paste your block of text into the little box and um, the result will appear side by side with the original, uh, side by side to the original so that you can compare and you can see all of your uh, American words and change it to British English. So there you go. You've always wanted this, I'm sure. Um, yeah, I'm just sitting here trying to think of what poipus I, poipus, poipus. <laughs> I would have. There you go. I could put that in and it would become purpose. Um, what purpose I would have for such a thing. But um, I'm well, sure let that me tell somewhere you. in the world. Oh, good. Thank you. Yes. If you uh, send your uh, documents out to be transcribed and you happen to have an American transcriptionist, oh. because many American transcriptionists are affordable and accurate and obviously understand English really well, but they write in American, right? Oh, right. Mm. See, it all becomes clear. There you go. Let us move on to our working writer's tip. Right. I'm going to throw that. the question to you. Oh, okay. I'm ready to catch it. Okay. Hit me. How do you beat writer's block? Because we get asked this question a lot. How do you beat writer's block? So I find this to be a really interesting question mm -hmm. because I don't actually suffer from writer's block very often, if at all. Bad and I person think to ask then. Well, I think that the main reason for that, and this is my honest assessment, mm -hmm. is that I work on so many different things all the time. Yes. So if I am writing something and I feel that it's not going really well or I can't do whatever, I just move on to something else for a while mm. and then I go back to it. So I just sort of feel like maybe that's the uh, that's one of the keys mm. is to be sort of working on different things because then you you know you just move you move to a different part of your brain and then you come back and mm. so it's not actually a block it's more of a diversion shall we say um and the other thing i think is that um with the when i'm working through a plot problem or something like if i've come to a point in a story that i'm struggling with i will walk or yes. weed 
or do those things. <laughs> I, I thought don't... you said we. We. Oh, weed. yes, I we regularly. Oh, <laughs> Valerie. <laughs> weed. With a weed. D. Um, I do things that are mindless. Washing dishes is helpful. Yes. Um, anything that allows me to sort of put my problem to the back of my mind while I concentrate on something mechanical and mm. repetitive. And then I usually find by the time I finish whatever task I've set myself that, that my little problem has unraveled itself and I go back to my computer and off I go. So I think thinking about something else can be very helpful. Yes. Um, so those are, is that helpful? How would you answer that question? How do you deal with writer's block? Yeah, definitely helpful. And I think that um, – I think that I'm also not a great person to ask and that's why I've decided to throw the question to you because I also don't really suffer from writer's block because I guess when you've been trained like us as journalists and you have deadlines, you just have to get the words out by the deadline Mm. or else. Mm. But I do suffer from not so much writer's block but from um, inertia in a sense. So just, just to kind of like life block not writer's block but Mm. wondering what to do next block oh Um, yeah I have that a lot more so than you know so being paralyzed by oh should I do that or should I do that or should I do that Mm. um and uh, for me what has been really useful just lately you may remember that a few weeks ago I said that I was starting my morning pages again because from the artist's way by Julia Cameron and I have been actually really very good about it uh I've been writing pretty much every day often not in the morning though sometimes they're the 11 p.m pages uh i know that's not what it's meant to be but it's better than nothing and i find that that freedom of just writing whatever comes into my head really helps me clarify and distill what i should be doing next um that's been this unexpected you know side effect and so now i i do it every day not because i think i'm going to uh, let the great Australian novel come out, but oh. for clarity on what I should be spending my time on each day. And it's been great for that. Well, there you go. There well, you that's go. a very, very good idea. I, I do, but I think, again, you know, we have come to the same conclusion that the the biggest, uh, the best way to deal with writer's block is to write something. Mm, yes. Anything. Yes, anything. And it's amazing exactly. how once you get started on anything, yes. that whatever it is that you're trying to focus on will come back into view. Yeah, I truly believe you need to let the shit come out in order to turn it to gold. <laughs> Thank you for that. Bro. In order for the gold to emerge. Are you going to get us a explicit rating no, that's on... not a bad word. Okay, all right. Yeah. I didn't Fine. say you know those I other know. words. I know, but you know. Anyway. <laughs> all right. So... That brings us to the end of this week's podcast. But uh, I want to remind everyone to listen to the end because you'll have a chance to win a fabulous book. But uh, in the meantime, what's coming up for you? What will you be working on today? Oh, today. Um, Well, today I've got children to attend to, so I will be doing that. Um, And I'm writing a couple of blog posts that will will go out with relation to uh, the launch of uh, Breath of the Dragon. I'm preparing for my author talk on Friday. I'm preparing for my Find Your Writing Superpower workshop (laughs) on Saturday. Are you going to talk like that? I'm going to talk like that. No, I'm not. (laughs) I do have this rather fabulous – oh, God, it was so much fun. I I have this section in it where I talk about, you know, how – Finding your own voice can is a you know is a is probably the writing superpower, mm. and I deal I do it by we talk about Batman voices how everyone's got a Batman voice and then I get them to actually a few of them to to demonstrate their Batman voice for me and I demonstrate mine and I say how they're you know 
you know, we're all saying the same things, but they're all different. Um, but it's so much fun. Go on, it's, do your Batman voice. I'm Batman. <laughs> What's yours? Give me yours. I don't know. I've never tried to be Batman. You've never tried to be Batman? No. Oh, you clearly don't have small boys in your <laughs> life. <laughs> <Clearly>. <laughs> I'm Batman. <laughs> no, I, I I just go meow. Oh, to my no, boys. Please, <laughs> you should try a Batman voice on them and see if they listen to you better. All right, it, work, it works really well. Trust me, practice I use it. I use week. it at home all the time. <laughs> um, to the Batcave, Robin. You know that kind of stuff. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. kapow. Okay. <laughs> Swack. Oh, and what will you be doing this week? What will I be doing? I am reviewing a new online course, a new online and on-demand course that we've got coming up. So it's shaping up really well. Mm-hmm. I think heaps of people are going to love it. So um, I'm keen to just, you know, uh, trim it around the edges and make sure that it answers all of the questions that people in our community will want to know about because it's all about self-publishing and putting your books on Amazon for those mm. people who are interested. Uh, but, yeah, it's going to be a good course. Fantastic. So, yeah, that brings it. us to the end. I know. Farewell for another week. Farewell, fair lady. Verily, we must go. (laughs) Until we meet again. Over that large medieval banquet that you're planning. I'm looking forward to it. Invitation will come soon. All right. Uh, Until next time, everyone, we'll talk to you next week. Bye. This week's giveaway is The Shearers, the story of Australia told from the wool sheds by Evan McHugh. It's a definitive history of these men bringing to life the toil, tumult and toughness of shearing life and the effect that this has had on Australia's national character. Visit writerscentre.com.au slash win for your chance to win. Entries close Monday, 5 October 2015. But if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry. There'll be a new book giveaway at writerscentre.com.au slash win that you can check out. In the meantime, if you're looking for the show notes to this episode, go to writerscentre.com.au slash podcast.